My name is Jim, and I'm powerless over alcohol. He reminded me that there were two watches up here. One of my, one of the people that I sponsor loaned me his, and then Popeye didn't think I'd be able to see it very well, so he put his up here. And then somebody else told me wherever they were sitting, they were going to point to their watch when it was time for me to hush. The reason they do that is because I can talk 20 minutes when somebody dials my house, and it's a wrong number. And, uh, I'm very grateful to be here this evening. It's, uh, it really is uh, it's a magnificent honor. I don't say that because it's, it just really is magnificent. I want you to know that I'm going to try to do a good job about an AA talk, and I'll tell you why. Uh, for a number of reasons, there are people here. One reason is there are people here that are new. And this may be the first convention or the first big roundup or the first big gathering ever. And I certainly would hope they would go away and want to come back. And then there's a goodly number of people that have uh, paid a lot of money to come here. So you don't want to pay money and show up. And we have somebody standing up here that uh, doesn't know what they're talking about. And uh, just so it might do them good. And uh, I hope that uh, I do the very best I can possibly do. So that when I lie down tonight with my own soul, I'm happy inside with what happened. Popeye's right. I have no idea what is going to come out. I'm not one that makes a talk anymore before I get here. Some things will come out that people have heard before. Some things may come out that I haven't heard before. That's the truth. I don't know where that came from. <clears throat> I want to thank Maurice and the committee just a whole lot for calling and asking me to be here. Uh, I called him back almost every day for a month to make sure he hadn't changed the schedule any or the lineup or whatever. And uh, then I called him just before he was leaving to come home to remind him that I'll be there, and I look forward to being here. Uh, I would like to say that uh, my sponsor, Stu, is in the room, and uh, uh, he spoke Sunday last year, and uh, I want Stu to stand up because I'm going to say some things about him. Not too long to stand up. And then you may sit back down. Thank you. We have a wonderful time, and uh, I, I, he's my sponsor number 10. And it's because the other nine have passed on to the great beyond. Or uh, that's it. He's the only one that's still alive. And I told him that. He may not want to take the job, and he said, well... Since I'm a lot younger than you, we don't have to worry about that. You'll be gone first. And I was able to say, then when you get there, I'll show you how to make coffee. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I uh, have done real well today and every day this week because I truly try to live in the day. And only once or twice did I try to think of something to say, which I have no idea what it was. And I talked to Stu, and uh, he said that there's a great prayer for speakers. God help me to help them, to help me, to help them, to help me. And that's all I did in preparation. Uh, I was talking before the meeting, and I did say that uh, somebody, people, we have some well-meaning, non-thinking people in AA. Uh, and some that are sober a long time. The new ones never do this because they don't know. But people come up and I'm standing there and they're cool as a cucumber and say, Hi, Jim, are you nervous? <laughs> well, I wasn't until you brought it up. Sometimes about a week ago, since I'm a tremendous fan of the game of football, and I watch an awful lot of, uh, my biggest character defect is on Saturday, not this one, but on most Saturdays I watch 10, 10 or 11 hours of college football. One of their quarterbacks made a statement. 
He said, if you are getting ready to go in the game and you don't have butterflies, then you don't love the game very much. And about five o'clock this afternoon, I came to the realization that nobody loved AA more than I have, especially today. Uh, Stu is my sponsor because uh, when I came to AA, he had been here a little while, and he was a young guy, and I like to remind him and me of this. We're great friends today, and he really does sponsor me. Uh, I'd argue with him about something back then, how many cups of coffee went in the pot or whatever. And one night he turned to me and said, hey, I was here 100 days before you got here, and you must listen to me. About a week ago, I said something we were talking. I said, oh, no, no, no. He said, hey, I'm here a hundred days before you. You must listen to me. So it works real well. And you know why? The guy tells me the truth. He always tells me the truth. I, uh, a couple of things I want to say along those lines that has to do with this program. Uh, Stu and I were, we were both young in this program. Uh, we came in, he came in March, I came in June. And I hate countdowns that are held during, the, during that period. He gets to stand up, and, uh, and I have to wait until uh, the next number comes up, and he turns around and smirks. <laughs> the other people in the room that are smirking tonight are those that have already talked. They already got, got up here, and they're just sitting out there smirking like I've done mine. I... Uh, there was a man who I uh, loved very much named Joe, and uh, Joe got Stu and me aside one night and said, uh, leave such and such date open, we're going to New York. And uh, we wanted to know why, and he said, well, it really doesn't matter, but we're going to go up there and meet the man that started this AA. It's Bill Wilson, Bill W., and we're going to shake his hand and say thank you. So we did. We went to New York, and we went to Bill's anniversary, and there were 3,500 people in the room. Many were dressed up. Many were uh, not dressed up. It didn't matter. And uh, Bill spoke, and when I read the big book today about his story, I can hear his voice in my ears. I'm a very uh, emotional, romanticist kind of guy. I, I can hear his voice. I laid in some barracks in Germany some time back, and they had pictures where it was the exact same barracks that the Germans used for training in World War II, and now the Americans use it. And uh, the pictures have changed very little. One of them shows German soldiers out, and the other one shows American. And I could lie in those barracks at night, and I could hear the roar in the voices of those German soldiers some 40, 50 years before I got there. So I could hear things. Uh, anyway, he said to us, we're going to go up there and thank him, and so we did. And it was a great, wonderful meeting that night. He had two speakers. One was a lawyer, and one was a recovered alcoholic whose profession had been prostitution on the streets of New York, and she claimed to be the toughest broad on Third Avenue. I don't know. At least I don't remember. <laughs> I called Stu earlier in... Uh, last week and said, look, i got something going here. I just want to keep you posted. I'm, uh, uh, I, I've been talking to my lawyer. And uh, he said, what about it? And I said, well, uh, I asked him, was it true that some cigarette tobacco companies had, had to award great amounts of money because people uh, died of lung cancer? And the lawyer said, yeah. And I said, well, is it true that... Uh, some lady spilled a lot of hot coffee in her lap, and she was able to sue and get money. He said, yeah. And I said, well, uh, there was a football player that left college, and he couldn't read, and he sued the institution. He said, yeah. He said, why are you asking me all these questions? And I said, well, I was wondering if I could sue some of the beer companies for all those ugly women I slept with. <laughs> And, and Stu told me, no, we can't do that. We clean up our lives. I don't want to hear any more about it. And I said, yeah, but he said, hey, a hundred days. <laughs> I hung up the phone. Thirty minutes later, he called back and said, why don't you look into it? Maybe we both benefit. <laughs> we met Bill in New York. 
that was great. That was wonderful. Then the man Joe that took us, who was really some kind of hard-nosed guy, took us down to the Bowery, and we looked off down that way, and he said, stand here for a minute and see if you see somebody fall over. We did. And he said, there's a guy that just died right in front of us. Stand here and keep looking. A little while later, another man fell over. He said, there's another guy that died. So you see, you can either stay sober and go to nice places where they have banquets, or you can drink and you can come down here and fall over and die. It's up to you guys. I appreciate that man very much. We had a great time there, and uh, I learned some great lessons. And one of them was we were crossing the street one day, and Joe, Joe was very small in stature, but he was, like, very tough. And... Uh, we were crossing the street, and it was very cold and raining, and, and the wind was blowing, and a lady from New York came up and stood by us waiting for the light to change, and she said, oh, my goodness, it's cold today. It is cold today. And he said, and I won't repeat exactly what he said, but he said, you got that right, you dumbass old B. And we walked on across the street, and I said, hey, Joe, we're in AA. We're supposed to be cleaning things up. And you know, he said, hey, why don't you shut up? The lady spoke to us twice, and you didn't even have the courage to answer her. At least I said something. So I learned right then in all these years, I don't butt into too many conversations and try to fix everything up. I started drinking down in the Deep South. Uh, was a tremendous uh, drinking operator with a lot of class. And uh, and uh, moved around and, and, and just really knew how the world operated. I, I joined the National Guard, and at 17 and a half years old, I went off to the summer camp. And the first weekend, I went into town with umpteen hundred other young National Guardsmen. They went to a honky tonk out in the boondocks. Uh, that's out in the woods somewhere, and uh, uh, <clears throat> very nice place. And uh, there's a lot of guys in there, about 200, and there's some uh, waitresses and some tough-looking bartenders and managers. And uh, this uh, girl came walking by and said, Honey, I like the way you look. Why don't you uh, hang around and maybe I'll let you take me home tonight. Now, I'm 17 and a half years old, and that was really like the greatest thing I had ever heard. And... Uh, it was like 7 o'clock. Well, by 9.30, I don't know how many guys she told that to. I'm smarter now. She worked on a commission, I think, on how many beers were sold. So anyway, about uh, 9 o'clock, the guys can't find me, and they start looking, and I'm laying in the middle of a highway. Uh, unconscious. One of those roads where log trucks go back and forth. They go in empty, they bring these logs back. It was still daylight. I was passed out. I don't remember any of it. I remember getting home. I mean, I remember waking up in my bunk, in that tent. I had no idea what happened. So all I'm going to say is it seems to me like at a young age, the first time I got away from home, I, I just didn't react socially. It wasn't like going down to the club with a couple of the guys and having a few drinks and talking about how successful the training had been that day. The first time I drank, I worked for a man who was a, a meat cutter, butcher we used to call him. I was a butcher's helper. I thought that was on the way to manhood because he taught me he could not lift anything heavier than a petticoat and that I would have to unload all the meat and bring it into place and then bring it to him when he wanted it. And one Saturday night, he said, why don't you... Uh, Get a six-pack and put it back in the cooler, and when we close up, we'll have a beer. I said, that's a good idea. I need a drink. I already told you I never had a drink in my life, but I said to him, that's a good idea. I need a drink. I had a couple of beers and felt real good. One of the speakers said it the other night. I'll tell you what, it just was magnificent. I remember my nose got numb, my earlobes got numb, and uh, I just wasn't afraid of anybody or anything. I just felt real good. The following Saturday, we did the same thing, and I had two, three beers. And in walking out of the store, I have some of those strange isms that 
affects some alcoholics. And uh, walking out the store, I looked at this cashier. I said, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? Nobody's ever done that, I'm sure. And he said, I just was watching you walk out. I said, oh, yeah, well, watch this. And I pounded him one right in the eye. And, oh, man, he had to go home, and everybody got all excited. And that night I went over to his house to make amends because I felt very badly about what I had done. And I never will forget that young man sitting there, and uh, he just seemed so small and so innocent, and I felt awful. That didn't keep me from drinking. The next 14 years, I traveled about this country, and... uh, I drank and I ended up in some strange places and I had a very good break in life. I'm not a guy that can stand here and say, you know, if I just had some breaks in life, it would have been better maybe. I had a lot of breaks. By the time I left left to go off in the Army, I had two college degrees. I was a young lieutenant. I joined the paratroopers. I was given a very special job that only two or three people had in this country. I was locked in a room. And all I had to do was memorize everything that was humanly possible at that time about the island of Cuba. Hell, I can't even remember people's names. I went up to a guy this afternoon and said, Hey, how you doing? My name's Jim. He said, I met you yesterday morning. <laughs> but back then, I was very good. I was on call 24 hours a day. My job was to brief the commanding general if necessary. Get called out of bed, whatever, go in. And so I was uh, sort of a special guy in the 82nd Airborne Division. I uh, later trained and became an undercover agent. I traveled around uh, undercover, carrying out a number of missions. I've been on a submarine and paddled ashore. I've gone across this country. Nobody knew who I was. I've uh, done a lot of things along those lines. So I had all... You know, the problem was I, I went across the country one time and went to Seattle, and my job was to penetrate this place and take pictures and, and uh, first of all, to prove it could be done, and second of all, to come back and, and have evidence. And uh, I was successful. The problem was when we got back and had this big debriefing scene in this place, I, I hadn't put any film in the camera. And uh, sometimes they would send me other places, and uh, I would go down the street. I stopped the policeman staggering around, you know, and I say, "Excuse me, officer, you tell me where this hotel is." He said, "Hell no." So you know, I was as mouthy as I was a drunk, and I said, "What kind of a cop are you? You're gonna be out here walking a beat forever. You don't know where the hotel is." He said, "How would you like a billy stick right across the face?" I said, I don't want that. He said, look, my friend, I can't tell you where the hotel is. The key says Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we're standing here in Denver, Colorado. How the hell do I know? (laughs) So what I'm seeing is if I stop to take a drink, there's no telling what might happen or where I might end up. Uh, I uh, broke an awful lot of laws. I uh, had a piece of paper in my pocket that if I was uh, taken in by a police department or any law enforcement agency, if I couldn't get out of it, and sometimes I could, but if I couldn't, I had a phone number that uh, I could turn over to them and they would call. And within 30 minutes, an automobile would pick me up behind that station and I would disappear into the night. And they couldn't do anything. They, I guess they had to tear the fingerprint cards up. I don't know. But anyway, those are the kinds of things I, uh, uh, somebody said about vomiting the other night, and, uh, you know, my nickname was Barb. I spent some, uh, I said this one time at a a place like this, and and later on I was at another place, and a young woman came up, and she said, I know you. And I said, you do? She said, yeah, I know, don't tell me, I know who you are. Oh, yeah, you're vomit, aren't you? I said, no, it's Barb. Now, I was in Southeast Asia for a period of time, and uh, I was introduced as Barb. I'm shaking hands with everybody, you know, hi, General, how you doing? Hey, Barb, good to see you again. <laughs> so uh, I asked this guy one day, I said, why do, they, why do they call me that? Barb? I said, yeah, I don't know that word. Two college degrees, huh? 
The world passes us by, and we think we know an awful lot. At least I thought I knew an awful lot. I didn't know what that word meant. So he explained it to me. I said, are they calling me vomit? He said, no. You vomit every time you drink, every night, everywhere. And then you go back and drink some more and vomit some more. I later learned that that was perhaps God's way of showing the human body that we no longer can take alcohol. We may die. And I've blacked out before and been taken off in ambulances and sold up and so on and, and always with the vomit on me. There was a drunk like me that uh, was out drinking one night after he got off from work and uh, enjoyed happy hour and so on. And his name probably could have been Barf. And uh, he went in the bathroom and he barfed all over. He came out and he told his buddy, Ooh, I'm going to be in trouble when I get home now. This was a relatively new suit, and my wife goes to pieces over this. He said, what? She said, she'll know I've been drinking. He said, oh, no, no. Take a $20 bill and put it up there. Stick it down in that pocket. And then when she starts getting on, you tell her, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was coming out of the bathroom, and another guy drinking was coming in, and he vomited all over me. And he said, I'm sorry, sir, here's $20, and he stuck it in my pocket and to help with the cleaning, and that's all that happened. She said, oh. So he took the coat off and was going upstairs, and she said, wait a minute, there's $40 here. She said, he said, yeah, well, the same guy pooped in my pants. <laughs> I did that, too. I was on a big operation in June of uh, June the 20th, I suppose, 1966, in Washington D.C. Big operation that included all the major agencies, and I was one of the guys in charge. And uh, coming in that night, we were supposed we were going to go to bed early. And I told the guy with me, I said, "Let's go across the street there and have a beer." He said, oh, "I don't know, man." And I said, "Oh yeah, come on." Just a beer. We'll have a bottle of beer. He said, okay. We went over and sat down. I looked at the table next to me, and I said, how much is that pitcher? Somebody told me. I said, hey, it's better to get a pitcher than two or three bottles. Let's get a pitcher. Well, at some point, I don't know where I was, but he wasn't around. And uh, it was the next day, and I'm walking around somewhere downtown uh, in places I had no business being. And... Um, I don't know what all happened. A lot of stuff happened. Police involved. Anyway, I went in this place, and for some reason, I had a silver dollar in my pocket that I never spent, no matter what the hell happened. Given to me by my favorite aunt, uh, her husband, when she was killed in an automobile accident when I was 12 years old. And I reached in my pocket, and I pulled that silver dollar out, and I said to the bartender, how much you give me for this? So I'll give you a beer. I said, hey, everybody in town knows it's worth at least three beers. He said, that's right. But for you right now, I'll give you a beer. Now, there's a side of me that I really never talk about too much. Uh, I went across that bar, and uh, he got his baseball bat. We went round and round, and I decided I'd better run because he had the bat in one hand and the cops on the phone in the other hand, and I ran and uh, I fell down, running down the street and fell down. And like, I don't know how to explain it, and I've never said it too often, but it flashed through my eyes. You know, you come from a very large family, from a family that does have some class, some of them. You have three children. You have all this. And you are laying here on the street with torn knees and a suit, and you're drunk and you don't have any money, you're in terrible shape. I need help. So they picked me up and took me to Walter Reed Army General, put me in a wheelchair and left me there for about 24 hours. Every time I went to the bathroom, somebody went and watched me, no matter what I had to do in the bathroom. And they did that for the next eight days. And uh, I was thrown out of the hospital on the ninth day. And a doctor said to me, I don't know 
if you know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I do. When I was a young intern, I saw the results of their uh, fellowship, and uh, they have an answer for you. If you could learn how to not drink, I believe that you have everything deep down inside of yourself to face the realities of life. All you have to do is learn how to not drink. And then he pointed at my stomach and said, why don't you give yourself a break? And that clicked. Why don't you give yourself a break? And actually, that's all I've done today. I've, gave, I've given myself a break by being here. Uh, willing to stand up here with butterflies or whatever and do the best I can and be honest. You know why that's important is because uh, a man came to my house and he, I saw him coming up the walk and uh, I reached up and hooked the screen door. I had a drunk's house and uh, he reached through the screen that was torn out and unhooked it. And he walked in and he sat down and I said, well, he's going to give me the same old stuff they've always given me. If you loved your children, if you cared about yourself, if you had any self-respect, I was a very patriotic human being. And if I cared about anything, I wouldn't act this way. I damn near died trying to control my drinking because one psychiatrist told me, if you learn to drink like a man, you'll be okay. I almost killed myself because the psychiatrist said you could do that. He told me a very interesting story about what alcohol had done to him. A fellow named Larry Rude told me what alcohol had done to him. He was smart. He knew just who to deal with. I've never had to use it with anybody out of 12-step, but I've done other things. I don't think Larry did this with everybody, but he said, Would you like to go to a meeting? I said, Oh, yeah, in about two weeks. I have a, I have a lot of stuff I have to take care of. I got to help with the kids, and they had all scattered. I didn't even know where any of them were when I came out of the hospital that day. He came the same night, the same afternoon. He said, oh, I understand, but you see, there's one thing I forgot to explain to you. You have a problem, you say, with drinking. You called AA, and they notified me, and I came. I came, and... Uh, we talked, and the rule is we have to go to a meeting that night. I said, oh, okay. So I went. And I was moved tremendously. I was a low-ranking officer in the Army. And I got there, and uh, Larry said he knew about my background. He said, hey, I want to tell you something. Come here. And I went over and he said, see the guy back there making coffee? He's an admiral in the Navy. And I said, whoa, this has got to be a good outfit. They got the admiral making coffee. <laughs> that man came out and I learned many years later from my wonderful sponsor, Bill Burke. Bill told me one night, he said, you can think all you want to and say all you want to about anything you think you've learned in this program, and you can explain the steps, and you can do them over and over, and you can do whatever. But I'll tell you why you're sober tonight, by the power of example. You are sober by the power of example, because I've heard you say it too often. I said, I never said that before. He said, no, but you talk about that first meeting. And Larry hollered back there and said, Ken, we have a new man here. And Ken turned around and started towards you. And as he approached, he had his white shirt on with starch in it, the old days, 40 years ago. And he ran the sleeves down and he buttoned them and he got to you and they were finished being buttoned. And he put his hand out and he said, hi, I'm Ken, I'm an alcoholic. You have a problem with booze? I said, yes, I do. He said, you're in the right place. Excuse me. I'm making coffee this month, and I have to go back in the kitchen. And he rolled his sleeves back up and went. And I thought that was a very gentlemanly-like, good manners-like move. Now, I wouldn't do that then and for many, many years. I, I don't want anybody in here tonight to get the idea that uh, I have any kind of monopoly on quick growth or anything else. I wouldn't use a serenity prayer for ten years. And I would tell you, I don't need that serenity prayer. 
Now, there's some weak guys around here, and a lot of women, they need it, but I don't need it. I almost got killed a few years ago with uh, my dear wife, Sue, and uh, I didn't see a car coming, and we came out, and, uh, and we really almost really got us, and uh, just by inches, the car went off the road, and, and so on and so forth, and she said, uh, you need to have your seatbelt on. I said, I'm a paratrooper. Why do I need a seatbelt? I was sober a good while. I uh, came out of a meeting one night. The man asked me, he said, how long are you sober? I said, 17 years. Going on 18 years. He said, why don't you act like it? I went home and pouted and thought about it. I'll tell you the biggest one so far. I was 27 years old. And my poor wife never was in the military. And she doesn't know anything about security, like locking doors and making sure that when you go to sleep, and I'm overly that way, because I never was able to get off duty without locking everything up, no matter where I was. Hell, I'd call from some other state and say, I forgot to lock that back door when I left yesterday afternoon. Will you go lock it? And I come home four days later and it's still unlocked. She don't know how to do that. So I came in one night and I said, hey, I was getting ready to go to bed and the front door was locked. She said, oh, I must have forgot. Now, I'm telling you, folks, this is like the 17th time in the past two years. Well, I'm smart. I said, well, she, you can't get this by just talking to her. I didn't really say this, but this is what happened. I happened to have on pajamas, which I really never sleep in, but I had them on because I'd been watching TV. Well, I am great at becoming the Incredible Hulk. And off come the clothes. And everything gets thrown around. All the clothes came off. Well, that's not good enough. I went and got the Army 45, opened the front door, walked outside and hollered, announced to the world, any desperados out here, I didn't use that word, I used some other word, any desperados out here that want to come in this house and take everything we have, kill me, rape her, and move on along, just come right on right now. We've got everything open for you. 27 years old. I, I, I can overreact. And, uh, but worse than that, of course, an hour later, it's, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what happened. Oh, my God. I mean, it's terrible. If you ever do something like that after you're sober, I have done it a lot. And my, just, my soul hurts for acting that way. However, the next day, I'm thinking, you know, that wasn't so bad. Just like when I was drinking. That wasn't so bad. Give me a couple of beers. See, that's okay. Everybody does that. Well, the next day I find myself saying, you know, I wonder if the police would like to know about these tactics. If they got a crazy man in every neighborhood, they'd all, they're they not coming here for a long time now. Those people that heard that say, don't go down there. They got a naked man with a gun. Let's go rob the places that they don't have crazy people. So if we get one in every neighborhood, we can eliminate crime. And by the time I finish, I think I've invented a new concept. The only thing is I mentioned it to Sue and she just walked away. So, so everything hasn't been perfect, but I came to this great God-given program and I tell you, I learned a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff that was good. And... Uh, not not always easy. Uh, I gave Berkey a ride home one night, and uh, I said, well, my ex, not Sue, my ex uh, called me an SOV. He said, I think she's right. I said, why? He said, well, you put a plate of spaghetti on her head. And the time before that, you waited until she put up new drapes, and then you throw a glass of milk on her. So you are. And I said, well, if she thinks that, and you think that, the biggest mistake so far in AA, if y'all think that, I might as well get drunk. We were sitting in front of his house, and he said, okay, here's the deal. 
I'm going to get out of the car and go in the house and have some ice cream. I want you to go to the nearest gin mill and get drunk. And tomorrow morning when you wake up, you can look up to the sky and say, Hey, the world didn't go little Jimmy's way. And I got drunk at it. And he got out and it was one of those car door slams that rocks the whole car. And he walked off and I'm muttering what I think of him. And then I really began to get educated. Went to a meeting one night. He belonged to a Skid Row group, uh, St. Ignatius, and uh, we went down there. He, he would go every so often, and he would take me. And the room was full of Skid Row alcoholics. And I learned some magnificent stuff down there, magnificent. And uh, one night they chaired a meeting. There were a lot of us that were sober would show up down there amongst those that were living on the streets. And... One night, he, he chaired the meeting, a discussion meeting. He called on everybody in the room except me. I mean, and some of these guys were living on Skid Row. And so at the end, that was okay. I could handle that. But he had to get up and say, tonight has been a real good AA meeting. I've called on everybody in the room that has something worthwhile to say. And riding home that night, I was on the back, and Bill was driving, and another fellow named Bill was in the car, and I'm saying to myself, I hope they let me out, and they both go get drunk. They don't know what they missed the night talking about that was a good meeting, except I didn't get called on. Today, I would never wish that on the guy that I dislike more than anybody else in this great AA program. Well, actually, there's quite a few, but I don't want any of them to get drunk. That's death or incarceration, suicide. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> this is a very important meeting for another reason. Stu and I came when uh, he was sober in March, I was sober in June, and we came to the ninth uh, session by the sea. That was 40 years ago. And I met my first fraud. Fraud. I went down to get coffee the night of the banquet, and I went and sat up by this, uh, on this, by this counter, and this guy that I know today says, uh, how long are you sober now? And I said, three months today. And I can just see him as plain as they saying, oh, <laughs> you got it made now. Don't worry about a thing. And I told my sponsor, and he said, don't drink any more coffee with him. He's a fraud. He did not tell you the truth. We never have it made. Never, never, never. So we were here, and it was a small group, and I'll tell you how I learned a lot about other things. There were maybe 300 of us, and we all were at the Plym Plaza, but it was the Plym Hemming back then. And uh, I think 300 of us were here, and uh, they had the banquet and everything in the hotel. Everybody didn't go to the banquet because I guess they didn't have the 6 or $7 it cost back then. But at that banquet, I learned something. First of all, there was a man named Greenberry. I don't know him. I just remember that. And he made me laugh. And that was the first time I remember laughing since I had come to AA, three months. And he had a very subtle, easy kind of a joke. And he would say it, and he would never laugh himself, but everybody else would. So I learned to laugh. The great thing that I learned is about the human beings that we are, all of us. Uh, we had the banquet, and the waiters and waitresses came out, and they brought the salads to each table, and we'd eat that, and then they'd bring the main course, and we'd eat that, and then they'd bring the dessert, and we'd eat that. And up at the head table, all the people sober, 12 and 17 and 21 years at the head table, they were going to speak and talk. Well, while I'm eating dessert, they hadn't got their salads yet. You'd be amazed how serenity and peace of mind and, and just so nice and easy about everything just goes out the window when you feed all the new people, but you don't feed the old timers. And I saw them getting mad and hollering and blah, 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 blah. I said, well... They're not as serene as they act like at all these meetings. <laughs> that was a very great day for us. I heard him say around the tables, 
but for the grace of God. We were in New York. We were walking along, and my friend is very streetwise, and he and I, we didn't know it at the time, but we were, we were going out to see New York's lights. But every now and then, I'm looking in the bar to see if I can see the dancers or something on the bar. You know, He's doing the same thing the other way, and we caught each other and decided, hey, man, we got to be careful while we're out here. So we changed our thinking. We stopped the drunk. I think you mentioned this last year. We stopped the drunk and we started talking. Well, he stopped us. He was hitting us up for a little handout. And we said, we'll give him something, but we're going to talk to him first. Well, we proceeded to 12-step this man. And at some point, with crooked fingers through doing this at him, if you don't take the first drink, you can't get drunk. I'll tell you how this works. And I'm saying something over here, and this guy finally said something like, holy smokes. There's 13 million people in this town, and I had to stop you two SOPs. I don't want anything. I walked off. The drunk came along, and it was, uh, was going to throw him down the subway steps. Stu said, let's stand here. They won't kill him as long as we're here. We keep walking and we're not around. They're going to beat him up and throw him down those subway steps. They called a paddy wagon or something, and uh, he was laying there on the street. And uh, I, I said, easy does it or something else. I meant to, I had a choice. I could make a choice. And while I was standing there, I'd heard this in AA. The choice is ours. We can choose to stay sober, whatever. And a lady came along who had on an evening dress with a man who had on a top hat. And they were walking along going to some kind of play, I suppose. And they stepped over him. She pulled her skirt up and they stepped over and looked back and sort of laughed. And I said, there's the answer. I can lay on the street and let the world step over me. Or I can walk along sober like we're doing now. And that's what happened. It is not possible for me to tell you about 40 years of sobriety, 40 years of growth, 40 years of all the cups of coffee, the people I've sponsored, uh, people that have helped me. It's just not possible. But I am going to tell you how I saw it work, a couple of great things. I mentioned uh, Berkey. I had my back against the wall down in Atlanta, Georgia. I was sober a couple of years. And... Uh, I called him to talk to him. He was not a very patient man or able to hold the phone to his ear very long. And finally he said, let me call you back in a few minutes. So I sat there in a few minutes. He called back and he said, pick me up at the airport in Atlanta, 11 o'clock Thursday night. I said, oh, Bill, you don't, you don't need to come. He said, I didn't call you up to ask you what I need to do. I told you where to pick me up. And he did. I picked him up. We went to the house, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, uh, back there, there's a bed where you can sleep. And, you know, see, and he said, I didn't come down here to sleep. I came down here to talk. We talked till the sun came up, cleaned up a little bit, and went to a morning meeting. The love of this program, there's a guy in his room somewhere named Burl. Burl lived with Berkey up in Baltimore. And Burl said, uh, oh, you're going to go and see the guy? He said, yeah, Jimmy's down there, and uh, I think he's a bum that wants to stay sober. And Burl said, well, I don't need this paycheck. And he signed it over and gave it to Berkey, who cashed it and helped pay for a plane ticket. None of those guys had money to pull a credit card and go do something. He came and talked to me. I'm sober tonight. I don't want to ever forget that. I can't tell you all the things that have happened. I'm a different person. And I'll sum that up real easy. I was in AA a while, and somebody would come over and say, Hi, Jim, how you doing? I'd keep my hand in my pocket and say, None of your damn business, and I ain't shaking your hand either. And I wouldn't. One lady said, You know, some are sicker than others. And I said, Look at them. They eat donuts and drink coffee after the meeting. I don't know what's the matter with them. So I had a terrible attitude about life, and... Uh, I want to tell you today that I consider myself one of the nicest human beings anywhere, except in my own home group. Uh, things happen that I don't like, and so I'm going to 
you know, whatever I have to do to pass the message on that I learned. I don't want you to come to our group, any of your friends out in the world that can't find an AA meeting. It's a closed AA meeting, and they come because they're in Overeaters Anonymous, and they like to talk. I don't want them in my group. I'm going to tell them. But other than those kind of things, I'm the nicest human being I know. I've met more people on the streets in the past week than a lot of people will meet in 10 years. I told you I could talk 20 minutes on a telephone call that wasn't meant for me. I stopped people. I'll tell you what has been a great blessing I've learned here for the first time. We have a lot of young people, men and women in this town that are from these countries like Russia and Romania and Yugoslavia and wherever. And I, I've talked to 15 of them. I've been amazed. Not one single one of them said they came to this country in order to uh, have a good time. They came in order to save money because when they go back to their country, they're going to be able to make their money go further and they're going to be able to help their parents. And I said, what do you really like about this place? The parties? No, we don't go to parties. We like the ocean and the beach. These are 19, 20, 21-year-old people. I'm very grateful to the God of my understanding that I have the, the desire to stop people and start talking to them. I'll tell you something you can do that you really want to help a human being out. There may be some in this room. I make apologies for that if I were to hurt anyone's feelings. My father was killed in World War II, so... I would never say anything uh, to hurt anybody. But if you see an older veteran walking down the street, I do it all the time. He's got Iwo Jima or something on his hat. And I say, excuse me, sir, how are you doing? Where were you during the war? And then be prepared to stay 45 minutes. <laughs> if they're going to take me through basic training and what kind of boat they were on and what, what, the, what they ate and what they didn't eat. I learned to give of myself because I took, took, took. I'm going to close in a very few minutes. I'm not too sure what time we started, and there were several things they got on me about here tonight. They uh, wouldn't let me set the watch back because I thought we should get time for all this countdown and stuff, but no. And uh, I didn't ask Stu, but I knew what he would say, but I asked a couple of other guys. I wanted to stand up tonight at, at 55 years he wouldn't let me. And I, I thought you could count 40 years of sobriety in AA in the first 15 years of my life when I didn't drink. But they say no. I have to get honest. I'm very honest. I'm too honest. I've gotten in a lot of trouble about being too honest. And uh, it's talk those things over with people that have more experience than I did at the time it was happening. I have a wonderful life, wonderful life. I'm married to the best woman on the face of the earth for me, the very best. She left here yesterday to go home. Uh, we're one of those people that came a long way, 10 miles. <laughs> they did save on gas, 10 miles. And uh, she ran home to check the mail and so on. was gone about three or four hours. And I'm telling you, I said, when is she coming back? I really miss her. She comes in the door and says, oh, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, I listened to the speaker the other night talk about Dick. And uh, for those that weren't here, there was something like he got a Christmas present for his wife, and they didn't have much money, and he, they weren't supposed to get presents. And, and uh, he, came, he said, I got something for you. And he went in the bathroom and came out with a red ribbon, you know where, and singing... Here comes Santa Claus. And uh, I went back to the motel that night, and I had to make sure it was that song because I hum Christmas songs all the time, every day of the year. And so I opened the door and said, Here comes Santa Claus, singing it. And she said, Forget about it. I'm watching the shopping channel. So... I'm thinking I'm going to work on the TV so it doesn't operate too well, but we'll see. I uh, live on top of the world. I, I believe I'm the most uh, uh, blessed person on the face of the earth. I can live with me. I can live with me. And I really enjoy that. I don't, I've made a lot of mistakes in AA. 
I've had fights in AA. I've cussed people out. I've pouted. I can pout for a long time. And, uh, and uh, talked about people and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but I don't do that so much anymore. I truly believe it's God's world. I love everybody in the room. I love everybody I run into. I'm not teasing about the singing. My wife Sue will tell you, if we separate in the biggest mall in the country, I just all I have to do is walk around and stick my head in a few stores. And somebody usually says, could I help you, ma'am? And she says, no, I'm listening for my husband. Oh, there he is. He's singing Jingle Bells. We, I don't know where it came from. I just do that. I left the meeting uh, not too terribly long ago and uh, was on top of the world. You know, we always tell new drunks, oh, I'm sorry you got fired, and you know, it's terrible to go through this, but this too will pass. Well, orgasms pass too, so when it's real good, you can say, well, this, this, I don't know where that came from, but... Uh, this too will pass. So I'm on top of the world. Man, I got everything. I went over to Easton. They got a great bunch of people over there. They've had me there a few times, and I spoke and, uh, at a hospital. And uh, uh, We went and left, and we went and got something to eat. And uh, this was four and a half years ago. And uh, went home. That was on a Sunday, and Monday got up and went. We were running some of our errands and taking care of things. We're both retired. And uh, I went in the salvage store, and uh, they have a lot of things in there that are very inexpensive. And one thing they had was a stack of baseball caps that had uh, the Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, 1996. So I said, I think I'll get two of these, one for me, one for my son, Miles. And walked around the store, and I said, you know, he is a hard work. He's a blue-collar, hard-working guy. He's not going to put this white hat in his, in his truck and go around and work in it. So I went and put it back on the shelf. And a while later, we got home, and when we got to the house and got in the house, there was a man waiting for us. Now, I want to tell you about this guy in Miles. There's people in this room that he sponsored. There's a lot of people in this room that he loved very much. And he really was one tremendous human being. He lived on the streets wherever he parked his car till he got sober. And then for 16 years, he stayed sober in this program. And the last time I saw him, he was speaking. It was his 16th anniversary, and he was speaking for somebody who was celebrating his 25th anniversary. And the meeting was over, and we were shaking hands and all, and I went up to him, and I said, Hey, Miles, good to see you. That was a good talk. He said, Hey, uh, Dad, how do you like this suit? And it was similar to this one. And I said, It looks fine. It looks great. He said, Well, I never have had an old man's suit before. <laughs> see, this is an old man's suit to the younger bunch. And uh, I said, Well, it looks great. So as we as when we departed, we kissed. I come from a family of men that believe in kissing hello and kissing goodbye on the cheek. If I walked in my grandfather's house and didn't go directly to him and kiss his cheek, I got a look that said, Hey, you're going to see some fireworks here in a few minutes. So I always did. I have sons that, uh, one son was in the military for 28 years. Every time I took him to the airport in his uniform, he said, don't worry about what anybody thinks. And he leaned over and gave me a kiss goodbye in his uniform. So anyway, I kissed Miles goodbye and went home. Now that day we came in from shopping. Sue's brother Harry was inside the house. And we went in, hey, Harry, how you doing? He said, not too good. What's the matter? It was very unusual for anybody to be in our house. And he said, well, there's been an accident. And I said, oh, who? He said, Miles. Is he alive? No. And I remember saying, no, he just shook his head. And I remember saying, oh, no, this is going to be a tough one. And it was very tough, very tough. Within a little while, somebody from AA came over and took the dog to take the dog walking. A little while later, somebody else came over and somebody else, and people were with us the whole time. 
Amongst other things, this very successful young man was a lineman. He owned businesses and other stuff. And uh, he went up the line, went up to a pole, and one of the guys hollered, you need, uh, you need to get these gloves. He said, I don't need them. I'm only going to be there for a minute. The same as if I run to the grocery store and say, I don't need a seatbelt. I'm only going to be gone for a minute. So he went up with the wrong gloves, and the wire kissed him on the neck, and he was gone in an instant. And I tell you, that hurt because we were great friends, father and son, great AA buddies. He would talk to me about anything. He would come and ask me on my, my advice about having been sober in AA, what should I do about this and that? And he would tell me stuff that I, I can't imagine a son talking to his dad and saying, this is what's uh, got me off track. So we were very close AA, very close father-son. And every year he had, uh, he would call me and say, the schedule is out. Which game do you want to see? And he would take me to see whoever I wanted to see with the Eagles. Uh, I mean, in Philadelphia, the Eagles and whoever else I wanted to see. We did that for years. So we were very close guys. Well, I'll tell you what, it hurt. And I moped around. I went to meetings and I did okay. And the first AA meeting I went to, there was a lady in that room named Susie. Suzanne, and I walked by and she said, hi, Jim. I said, hey, how you doing? She said, well, I just want to tell you, I understand. I lost two sons the same night in an accident, so I understand. Well, I'd run into people that would say things like, I understand. I lost an uncle that was 100 years old. And I said, well, that is something. And... Uh, <laughs> One lady lost a parakeet. I said, oh, I couldn't really identify. One night a man came to our group I never saw before. I was sober like 34, 35 years. And uh, the guy stood up and when they made announcements, he said, I'd like to announce that I'm going to be celebrating my 43rd anniversary. Da, 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 da. I never saw him before. The meeting is over. And I like to go after those guys. And talk to them. What are you working on now? I'll ask anybody sober here longer than me. What are you working on? So I went and we talked for a few minutes. He said, you don't look so good. Something on your mind. I said, ah, it's been, been sort of tough this past number of months. And he said, what happened? I said, well, I lost a son. Accidentally, they say. And uh, it's just been tough. He said, oh, I understand. Well, I'm thinking parakeet, 100-year-old uncle, What? And he said, no, I understand. I have law. I lost a son after I got sober, and it was an accident, and it was terrible. So I do understand. What you don't understand is that some years went by, and I lost another one by accident in this program, and I stayed sober. It's never really easy, but I'll tell you what, I had a little experience about it the second time. So it's good meeting you tonight. And he left. So this lady out here and that man told me that I certainly wasn't alone. And I'll tell you something else. There's somebody in this room tonight that's been through some tragedy. What I really hope that there's somebody in this room that's new that wants to come back. You see, if Stu and I can be here for the ninth one and then 40 years later come to the 49th one, why can't somebody else do the same thing? Why, why do you have... Somebody told me tonight I'm trying not to drink. Somebody told me I'm trying not to drink. I said, don't try not to drink. Don't drink. That's the secret. If you're 17 years sober and act like you're not, you start acting like you're 17, but don't drink. If you stomp around outside with a pistol in your hand and you're ashamed to tell people in AA, when you go back and tell them, they're going to laugh and you still don't have to drink. No matter what happens, don't drink. It is a hideous disease. My mother died from alcoholism in and out of AA for 30-something years. She OD'd on prescription drugs and uh, alcohol. My dad was an alcoholic who died in World War II. have a bunch of them in my family, a bunch of them. Uh, we have enough at one time to have our own AA group. We had seven or eight of us. About the death of my dear son, I want to say in closing that uh, it is not a problem at all today, none whatsoever. 
it's because of AA. I read things, I see things on TV, I watch somebody loses a son and nine years later they still can't get out of bed. AA, Stu called me the day after the funeral and said, are you lying in bed feeling sorry for yourself or are you ready to get your ass up and get going? Only somebody in AA would say, church people aren't going to call and do that. But he knew, so I got up and got going, of course. But today I can tell you this, that if I think about my boy that's gone, I use some of the great stuff I learned in the game of football. You know, it's just like if you have a football team and you know, one of your key players gets his leg broken and he's out for the season, you huddle up and say, well, we've lost a great player here, but we got to finish the schedule. Well, I have to finish the game of life. I have to keep doing I have to keep loving you people and allowing you to love me that I never knew how to do. So you know what I say today? It's really none of my business. It is none of my business. It is between God and Miles. None of my business. My business is about the simple question, how do I stay sober and how do I practice Alcoholics Anonymous and how do I learn to go to another level and be a better person? How do I live these steps? Uh, I want you to know that I do love you and I thank you and I hope that somebody in here got something. I'm not concerned and I'll tell you why. I have spoken before. I spoke down in Tennessee and I went to this town and they had the meeting upstairs and over an apartment over some buildings downstairs and I went up there and I spoke and I was sober about a year and the meeting is over and a lady comes up to me and she says, oh my Lord, I have never heard an AA talk like that. Oh, thank you. Oh, what a godsend. And I'm thinking, they should have had me at the auditorium with a lot of people. Now, I didn't stop and think it could have been her first AA meeting. I got near the door, and as one of these country guys was whittling, just down in Tennessee, he was whittling on a stick and never looked at me. He said, hey, boy, you going back to Memphis tonight? And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, you need to get to a meeting real soon because you've got a hell of a long way to go. And that night, when I was a year sober, I learned, what do I care? Some are going to say it was good. Others are going to say, oh, my Lord, he hasn't added anything to whatever he's got to say. And this is uh, the biggest group I ever talked to. So this has gotten better for me because one night I was supposed to speak in Memphis, Tennessee, and a guy called me and said, look, we know you're speaking at the club tonight, but... So-and-so is coming to town, and he's a lot better speaker. <clears throat> so if you would let him have tonight, and you go over to West Memphis, Arkansas, there's a speaker's meeting over there, and I've called the guy and told him that you would come. I said, okay. I didn't know. I said, okay, I'll be glad to. So I go over to West Memphis, Arkansas, and I ride around, and I find this group which meets in a little house. And I go up there to the door, and nobody's there. I said, what the heck is this? And it's like 10 minutes to 8, and I finally see a couple of guys down there in a the car, and I go down there and knock on the car window, and they're, if you're from the deep south, I'll tell you, that football is unbelievable. And they said, we're listening to LSU and Alabama. I said, well, do you know anything about this beating up? And he said, yeah, we're members of the group. And I said, well, is anybody going to open up and make coffee? He said, why? It's just two of us here. I said, I'm here, and I'm here to speak. Well, why don't you just get in the car and nobody else is coming? We'll listen to Alabama and LSU. And I said, no, I'm the speaker and I'm going to speak. So we went in and made coffee and about ten minutes after eight, one of them sat here and one of them sat here and there was an aisle going down. And they sat there and I talked for 40 minutes. And they kept looking at their watch, wondering how Alabama and LSU was going. I pray that we all stay sober. We won't. 
I pray that there's better days ahead, and there will be, and some difficult days. None of them are bad. I don't have any bad days in my life. Never. I have very good days, and I have interesting days. When Miles died, it was was more than an interesting day, but it wasn't a bad day. It was a sad day. AA taught me that I can look ahead and I can be positive, and I really am today, and I'm going to walk out of here, and the next person I see outside that's not in AA, I'm going to say, Hi, how you doing? It's nice to meet you. Where are you from? You did that amongst other things to me. May God bless us all, and may we meet again somewhere on the great road of sobriety.